0: Good evening. I want to know, I want to tell you uh, just how much I'm loving my time here with you. I've enjoyed some very sweet Christian fellowship today, and I'm glad, very glad to be in your midst, in your area, to sing these songs of praise together and to study God's Word together. And I've never had any more gracious introductions than. And maybe more undeserved introductions than I've had the ones this week from my good brother Tony. I do appreciate and love him for his kind words and appreciate you for your love for God and many things you could be doing on a Tuesday night. But here you are, Mary and Martha. You remember, Martha, Martha, you're troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary's chosen that part, and that was to hear the Word of God taught by Jesus. Now, We can hear what the Word of God says tonight through the words of Jesus as recorded in Scripture, and we can certainly investigate God's Word. So what a wonderful use of your time tonight. I want to ask a question as we begin that I hope will really provoke some thought if you're not familiar with this line of thinking. Were the people on the day of Pentecost given the correct plan of salvation? Now let me make sure we're all on the same page. By day of Pentecost, I'm referring to the one about which we read in Acts, the second chapter. That was about 50 days after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven. About 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I should say. And 10 days after His ascension, approximately. And so here you find the day of Pentecost. And the Spirit falls upon the apostles and they begin speaking in languages that uh, they were not able to speak in without divine supernatural power given to them. And this causes the people to start listening to them. And Peter preaches a gospel sermon about how they crucified the Christ. And they're so convicted by the sermon that they cry out, what shall we do? I want to ask this question, did Peter give them the correct answer? Well, I'm sure that he did because Acts 2.4 says that the apostles were speaking as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now what was the message that Peter gave when those people said, what shall we do? Would you notice in your Bible, or write it down and look it up later, check me out on this, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, then Peter said unto them, repent. And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. And he told them they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, about 3,000 gladly welcomed this word and were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And then verse 47 mentions that the Lord was adding to the church those who were being saved. Now, I want you to stop and just at this artist rendering here tonight, and if this was the day of Pentecost, did these people do the right thing by being buried with their Lord in baptism? Were they following the right plan of salvation? Did Peter give the correct plan of salvation in Acts 2.38? Is there anyone here tonight who would say Peter gave the wrong plan of salvation? Is there anyone here tonight who would say this, Preacher, what Peter really should have said was, Everyone bow your heads and say this prayer and ask Jesus to become the Lord of your life. Is there anyone here tonight that would say that the inspired Apostle Peter gave the wrong plan of salvation? I'm sure he gave the correct plan of salvation because he was led by the Spirit to say what he said. Now, if he said that on the day of Pentecost, I want to ask this next question. Were the saved on the day of Pentecost... Added to the correct church. Well, Acts two and verse forty seven says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now, let me pause and ask you to go back in, in in time with me. Just in your mind's imagination, picture going all the way back to this day with me. If you and I could go up to these people and talk to them and say, We've noticed that you've been baptized. And we've heard you mention that having done this, you're now a member of the church. We're from the year 2015, and we have one question for you. When you were baptized, which denomination did you join? Now this is where you have to take yourself out of our 21st century setting, try to plant yourself back here in the 1st century and try to imagine how a first century individual on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2 would have answered the question, oh, well, which denomination are you? You would have gotten a look of confusion and puzzlement. Which, I'm sorry, what? Well, you know, of all the different denominations that exist, which one are you? They didn't know anything about the denominational churches that you and I see all around us. They knew there was a church. They knew the Lord had added them to that church. But guess which church it was? It was just the Lord's church, the church that belongs to Christ, or the church of Christ. I was having a Bible study in April about 22 years ago tonight, or 22 years ago this month, I should say. And I'll never forget, I was studying with this young couple. And I was ready to move on to the next point. I just made the following observation. The people on Pentecost were added to the Lord's church, and they didn't know anything about all the denominations that you and I have grown up around. In fact, I used this illustration. I said if we could pick someone up from the day of Pentecost who would just been baptized, and if we could transport them immediately into our modern day culture and drive them up and down the streets of our cities... With all these different church buildings and all these different names, I can promise you one thing. It wouldn't take them very long to stop and say, excuse me, what are these? What are what? All of these, they're churches. I've never heard of any of these churches. I became a member of the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, but I've never heard of this one and 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 this one. one one. I thought you said you were a member of the church. Well, I am a member of the church that Jesus Christ built and bought with His own blood. But I don't know anything about all these churches. Now friends, that's just the historical reality of the situation. They would be confused by all the masses of churches that are available for choosing today. And you and I would not find those churches if we were to go back to the day of Pentecost and we were to start looking for the church known by this name, this name, this name, and that name. We'd look long and hard and never come close to finding it, but true or false, we could find the church in Acts 2, could we? Yes. And I'll never forget, I was going to move to the next point, and the young lady that was studying with me said, Whoa, slow down, wait, go back. If I'm understanding you correctly, you're not trying to convert us to leave our denomination we've grown up in to join your denomination you've grown up in, because it's the best denomination of all denominations. If I'm hearing you right, when you talk about us becoming members of the church of Christ, you don't mean a denomination known by the name church of Christ. You mean the actual church of Jesus Christ, the church that belongs to Christ, the one we're reading about here in Acts 2, this is the church of Christ you're trying to get us to become members of, what would you have said to her? I said, yes, ma'am, the only church of Christ I want to be a member of is the same one these folks became a member of in Acts the second chapter. And if I do what they did, I'll be what they were. What were they? They weren't members of one denomination known as the Church of Christ. They were members of the actual church that belonged to Christ. And if we do the same thing they did, we can be members of the same thing. The Church of Jesus Christ. But that raises a question. What happened? How did we get from one church in Acts chapter 2 to so many thousands of churches today In so many different places, how did we get from here to here? And maybe more significantly, the question we want to ask is, how can we get back to just being the one church that belongs to Christ about which we read in the New Testament? And you know, if you really want to stop and analyze it, you could make it complicated if you want to, but it's really a simple explanation as to how we got from one church to all the different churches. It's really quite a simple explanation. It's a matter, it's simply a matter of addition and subtraction. That's really what it is. What happened? Men started adding things that should not have been added to God's Word. Men started subtracting things which should never have been subtracted from God's Word. And this addition and subtraction that was going on was creating a multiplication of different churches with different beliefs and doctrines on how to be saved and how to worship and how to organize the church, etc., etc., etc. So here's the bottom line. I want to get to this issue. How do we get back to the church you read about in the New Testament? And it might seem odd, but I want to actually go to two Old Testament examples where in one case they added something they should not have added. I'm going to show you how they restored things and fixed it. In another case, they subtracted something they should not have subtracted. And I'm going to show you how they fixed that. And then I'm going to transport that principle into our modern situation and see how we can be just the Lord's church. Now if you go to First Chronicles with me, it may be a place in your Bible that doesn't have any fingerprints on its pages. Then again, that depends on the person and the Bible. Some of you have read Chronicles and probably recently. I know Brother Boyd was saying today at lunch he'd been reading Chronicles. And so I know this is a book that some have read, but many have not really read some of these Old Testament texts. May I remind all of us here tonight that Paul said whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. There's something we can learn from this. What is it? In First Chronicles 13, what a celebration was about to break out. They have now gained the Ark of the Covenant. It's back in the hands of God's people. They're so glad to have it back. And in verse 7, they carried the Ark of God in a, notice this, new cart. And they did this out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio were driving this cart. Now would you note, they didn't take the Ark of the Covenant and find some old rickety cart that had seen its better days and say, we're going to put this precious piece of furniture on an old dilapidated cart. You might think they're deserving of great commendation for choosing a brand new cart upon which to place God's Ark of the Covenant. And let's see about this. In verse number 9, they came to the threshing floor of Kidon, and that's when Uzzah does something That would certainly be unforgettable to the people that saw it. Uzzah put forth his hand to hold the ark. Now wait a minute. Numbers 4.15 says, You touch the ark, you die. So why would Uzzah grab the ark when that threat was there in God's Word? You touch the ark, you die. It wasn't a situation where he said, Well, let's see if you really mean that, God. I'm going to grab it and see if you do anything about it. The oxen stumble. The ark is in the cart. The oxen are pulling the cart. The oxen stumble. The cart has to go somewhere. And uh, there must have been some sort of collision in which the ark is about to topple. And Uzzah reaches forth almost instinctively to steady it, to keep it from being damaged and falling. And uh, what does he get for this apparently heroic act of saving the day and saving the ark of the covenant from damage? What does he get for it? Here's your answer, verse 10. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and he smote him because he put his hand to the ark, and there he died before God. My dad is a gospel preacher, and I grew up as a boy listening to him and other gospel preachers come into our congregation and hold meetings, and very often Uzzah was a subject matter of sermons, and so I grew up hearing about this Uzzah. But in my boyhood, not having studied enough and not knowing enough about God doesn't owe me an explanation anyway because He's God and I'm not, I didn't understand why Uzzah was killed. I I just It seemed like he had done a good thing, and yet instead of being rewarded for what he'd done to save the ark, He's dead, and I didn't quite get it. Now, I'm not the only one that ever wondered about this. Look at verse 11. David was displeased. He thought the Lord had been unfair to Uzzah, and even called that place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And then David is afraid of God that day, and he asks a question. Watch the question David asked in 1 Chronicles 13, 12. How shall I bring the ark of God home to me? True or false, the answer to David's question had already been recorded in the written word that was available to David. Yes or no? Friends, yes. I wanted to show you that the question, how shall I get the ark from point A to point B, had already been clearly mapped out. If you'll go back to Exodus chapter 25... In your Bible, you'll notice beginning at verse number 8, God starts talking about doing things according to uh, the pattern. Verse 9 in particular mentions this. And then watch verse 10 of Exodus 25. He says, now, I want them to make this ark. He tells them the type of wood to use. Question, was one wood as good as another when it came to building the ark? Yes or no? It wasn't. If God didn't care what kind of wood they used, He would have just said, make it out of wood. But he said, I want you to make it out of shit of wood or acacia wood. And so he says, all right, two cubits and a half shall be the length. Cubit and a half broad, cubit and a half high. True or false? One length was as good as another. No. God says two cubits and a half long. And uh, true or false? One breadth was as good as another. No. One height. No. God gave the exact dimensions he wanted. Watch verse number 12. Cast four rings of gold for it. I want two rings on one side, two rings on the other side. Now what are these rings for? Verse 13. Make staves, make the poles out of the same wood you made the ark out of. Overlay them with gold. And then what? Verse 14. You put the staves into the rings by the sides of the ark. Why? Here it is. That the ark may be born, B-O-R-N-E, carried with them. God How serious are you about them transporting the ark by these poles? Watch verse 15. The staves shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Remember, the ark is a part of the tabernacle, and the tabernacle was a traveling thing. God would give the uh, visual clue as to when it was time to move on to the next place. And so they start packing up. What if they can't find the poles because someone hadn't been diligent to keep up with the poles. They might have been tempted to say, well, look, we've we got to get going here. Just grab an end of that ark and let's go. God says, don't you do that. You make sure those poles stay with that ark. Now I want you to go to Deuteronomy 10. Watch this. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Did God ever specify the personnel He wanted transporting this ark? He did. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, notice verse 8. At that time... The Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark of the covenant of the Lord. So you couldn't bear it if you were the tribe of Judah, if you were the tribe of Dan, if you were the tribe of this, the tribe of the twelve tribes. Did God have to go through the laundry list of all the tribes and give an explicit, Thou shalt not transport the ark if you're from this tribe? No. Once He separated the tribe of Levi and authorized them, no one else was authorized. And then this gets interesting, the tribe of Levi was even subdivided into three groups. You've got your sons of Gershon, your sons of Merari, and your sons of Kohath. File that away momentarily, and I want you to notice that in the Bible, in Numbers chapter 7, this is a a marvelous thing, Numbers 4.15 we've already alluded to, God says you touch the ark, you die. But I want you to notice Numbers chapter 7, if you will. Well, the Bible makes this crystal clear. And I'm, I tell you, I was studying a whole nother subject some years ago. I wasn't even looking for this. But if I ever had a doubt as to whether God had a right to be outraged, number one, again, I don't think He owes me an explanation. God is God and knows more than I could ever know. So if He's mad, He has a right to be. If He's angry, divine wrath is what I'm talking about, not some kind of hot-headed a childishness but if God is angry he has a right to be and now that I've studied this passage I can see even more why he was angry numbers chapter 7 God says here's what you do with this gift that was brought well what was the gift in numbers 7 look at verse 3 they brought their offering before the Lord six covered stop wagons you see the word wagons same Hebrew word translated cart in First 1 Chronicles 13.7. Well, you say if it's the same Hebrew derivative, why wouldn't it be translated with the same English word if it's from the same Hebrew word? Well, here's the deal. Did you come here tonight in an automobile or a vehicle? And you would say, what? It doesn't really matter whether I say automobile or vehicle. They are equivalent to the same thing. Wagon, cart, cart, wagon. We're talking about the same thing. Six covered wagons or six covered carts. And then what's 12 oxen? God, what am I supposed to do with these oxen carts and these oxen? Verse 5, God says, Take them that they may be to do the service of the tabernacle of the congregation. Give them to the Levites. So they can use them to carry out their service to God." Alright, now, verse 6. Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them unto another tribe. No, he didn't. And he did not have to say, well, God, you didn't say not to give it to this other tribe. Now, did you? When God said, give them to the Levites, that meant whom? The Levites. It didn't mean anyone else. That's the law of authority. And so here God says, give them to the Levites. That's exactly what Moses does. But remember, the Levites divided into three groups. Gershon... Merari and the sons of Kohath, they were the ones in charge of carrying the Ark of the Covenant. Watch verse 7. Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon according to their service so they could use this to do their work for God. I hated word problems when I was in school. What about you? Some of you loved them. I didn't. But I can handle this one. We start off with six covered carts, twelve oxen, and we have three groups To distribute it among. How are we going to distribute the six covered wagons and twelve oxen among three groups? Two wagons and four oxen he gave to the sons of Gershon. That leaves how many carts? How many oxen? It leaves four carts, eight oxen. Well, you think we've got two groups left. Just give two to each and uh, four to each and then we'll have it done. But watch this. In verse number 8, four wagons and eight oxen he gave unto the sons of Merari according to their service. He gave the remaining wagons or carts and oxen away and the sons of Kohath, they don't have any left for them. Is that an accident? Is it just an oversight? Is he going to say, oh, I'm sorry, I already gave them all away and forgot about you. Watch verse 9. It was intentional. But unto the sons of Kohath he gave none. Why? Why did he give none to them? Because the service of the sanctuary belonging unto them was that they should bear upon their shoulders. I'm not even going to give you any oxen or oxen carts. Why? because you might be tempted to use that as a method of transportation instead of bearing it on your shoulders like the written word says to do. So I'm not even going to give you any oxen or oxen carts. And in spite of this passage, which was in David's Bible, the inspired word of God under which David and Uzzah and everyone lived at that time, in spite of the plain teaching on this, David and others have taken the Ark of the Covenant and put it on an oxen cart. Now, when we last left David, he was uh, confused. He thought God had been unfair. I want you to see David singing a different tune now. Go to First Chronicles again, but this time I want you to go to chapter 15. First Chronicles chapter 15, and I want you to notice, please, beginning at verse 1. First Chronicles 15, make verse 2 even. David said, none ought to, what's that? Carry the ark of God. But the Levites, for them has the Lord chosen to what? Carry the ark of God and to minister unto Him forever. Verse 5 mentions the sons of Kohath. And verse 12, He says to them, You're the chief of the fathers of the Levites. You need to sanctify yourselves, ye and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I've prepared for it. Are you ready for verse 13? Because you did it not at the first... The Lord our God made the breach upon us why we didn't follow orders. We didn't follow written orders. We sought Him not after the due order. We didn't do what God said do in the way God said do it. Now watch what happens. Verse 14. So the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And I couldn't overemphasize verse 15 if I tried. The children of the Levites bear the ark of God upon their shoulders with the staves thereon as Moses commanded according to the word of the Lord. And here's my question for you tonight, dear friends. Could they have done it the right way in chapter 13 just as they did it the right way in chapter 15, if only they'd taken the time to read their Bibles and to see how God wanted it done. Could they have done it correctly in chapter 13 if they followed the written Word? Yes or no? Would Uzzah have ever been put in a position where he would be reaching for an ark that was falling because of oxen stumbling if they'd followed God's Word in the first place? I grew up hearing that one apostasy leads to another and leads to disastrous consequences. Friends, if they'd never deviated from God's pattern for how to transport the ark in the first place, Uzzah would still have been alive. They did the very opposite of what God's Word said do, and that's why Uzzah was in the position he was in, and that's why he died. By not following the written Word, they created this problem. And you and I can create problems as well when we don't do what God says according to the written word under which we live. Now with this said, I want you to go to the second example of the two. We've looked at unlawful addition. They added a method of transportation. They should not have added. Here's a case of unlawful subtraction. They took something out that God had put in and they had no right to take out. Let me show you what I mean. Go to Nehemiah. Now, in your English Bible, the book of Nehemiah is placed somewhere kind of near the middle, but really chronologically, the book of Nehemiah belongs near the very end of the Old Testament. And so here you find Nehemiah chapter 8. The people have been home from captivity Uh, coming back in different waves, and their temple has been rebuilt finally, and uh, Nehemiah is going to rebuild walls. But I want you to notice that Ezra does something in Nehemiah chapter 8 that they requested that he do, and you and I should give some real attention to it. In Nehemiah chapter 8, they stood there before the, the water gate, and I want you to notice in verse number 2, Ezra brought the law before the congregation both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding, would you zoom in on this for me, please? What day is it? What month is it? Upon the first day of what month? Seventh month. Now, he read therein before the street that was before the water gate. He's reading from morning till midday. And I bet that made the people mad, right? (laughs) In our day and time, might, sadly, My wife and I, just a quick aside here. My wife and I were at a theater some years ago. We've been told there was a movie we could actually go watch at the theater without being embarrassed if Jesus came back while we were there watching it. And so we were there watching this film. or getting ready to watch it. And they had all these little trivia questions or factoids up on the screen before it started. One of them caught my attention. It said, did you know the average running time of movies today is 30 minutes longer than movies of 50 years ago. Average movie today, 30 minutes longer than movies of 50 years ago. Now this caused me to ask this question. The average sermon today, would the average sermon today, not the ones preached in this meeting, but would the average sermon today be longer or shorter than the average sermon of 50 years ago? Shorter for sure. Let's see if this, we can make sense of this. The movies are getting longer. Hollywood's spending more time in the heads of Americans than God's Word is. Does that explain anything about why our world's upside down, perhaps? It's another sermon for another time. I used to live in Knoxville, Tennessee. My very first pulpit job was in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I'd never been to a college football game. This brother called me up and he said, Do you want to go to the game this Saturday? I said, I I love sports. I'd love to go. Okay. I'll pick you up. He told me what time to be ready. And when we drove to the stadium, we parked two miles away from the stadium. He didn't seem to mind, and I was 100 pounds lighter then, so I didn't mind either. And we got out, and we started walking. And everybody had pep in their step, umption in their gumption. They were ready To get to the game. Oh, there's, I kept hearing people say it's football time in Tennessee. It was, oh, everybody was fired up. It was exciting. And if you're not for that team, just go with me on this illustration. You'll, you'll still understand what I'm driving at. So we get to the actual stadium finally and we get inside and he says, we're up there. I said, okay, free tickets. I'm not about to complain. I'm walking up those stairs, and when we get there, there's a a, a space about this wide to sit in that has my number on it. I was glad I was 100 pounds lighter than I am now. I would have had trouble fitting there then. No back support. It's basically an aluminum bench at the time. Everyone around me seemed to be fine with that. No padded pews. And the game, my very first college football game, went into overtime. And people got so mad and angry and stomped and snorted out of there. They said, this is a real imposition on my time. No. They didn't. You know what I kept hearing? Free football! Free football, yes! Free football! And I thought, though it would be inappropriate to hear this, I could not even imagine... Uh, the preacher going over and someone saying, free preaching, free preaching. This is fantastic, free preaching. <laughs> I started wondering, "What? do you know how long, by the way, the average college football game is slated for in television time? Three hours. Three hours are blocked off for a college football game. I haven't preached a sermon this week, long though they have been, that's gone as long as one half of a college football game. May I say to you quickly, and then move back to my main point here, Jesus said, where your treasure is, what? There will your heart be also. And I'm convinced that we have some folks who still treasure the Word of God, such as you've done this week with your attendance here at this meeting but I'm convinced we also need to work on some folks and try to help them get a little greater appreciation for it. These folks are listening to God's Word read from morning until midday. And the second day, they come, some of them come back for more. Look at verse 13. The second day were gathered together the chief of the fathers of all the people, the priests, the Levites, unto Ezra the scribe. What are they there for? Even to understand the words of the law. And they found written. There it is. Written word. What did they find written? You know, I know exactly what they found. And I know this because the only passage in the entire Old Testament that gives the information that they would have been hearing is Leviticus 23, 39-44. And so what did they find written? They found, verse 14 of Nehemiah 8, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths. When should they dwell in booths? In the feast of the seventh month. And according to verse 2, last part of the verse, what month does it just so happen to be in Nehemiah 8? It is the seventh month. Now I want you to please consider this. The law of Moses. Moses had been dead now uh, approximately a thousand years. And so something that was written so long ago is still guiding these people and they don't think that uh, they've progressed beyond the authority of the written word. No, they consider themselves to be under the inspired written word uh, of the law under which they lived. And so... They found out what they should be doing. Verse 15, go out and fetch all these branches. And then what's the last part of verse 15? Why do you do, what do you do with these branches? Make booths. Why would we do as it is written? The written word's making us do this. We want to do what the written word says. So they went out, they brought them, they made booths, everyone did it. Verse 17 says, all the congregation of them that were come out of the captivity made the booths, sat under the booths for This is astonishing. Since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, unto that day had not the children of Israel done so. And so here we are in Nehemiah chapter 8. In 1 Kings, Solomon had tried to practice the feast, but they didn't build the booths. At the dedication of the temple. And You can read in Ezra 3, they made it a tent, but they didn't build the booths. This is the first time since the days of Joshua that they built the booths. But I want to ask you a question, true or false, even though they hadn't been building these booths in the seventh month since the days of Joshua, 10, 50, 100 years, 200, 300, 400, almost a millennium we're talking about, true or false, even though they hadn't been building those booths, the written word of God has said all along they should be. So what happens when you find out that you have not been doing what this book says to do? I know what some people would do. They'd say, well, if my mom and dad didn't do it, I'm not doing it. If my grandma and grandpa didn't do it, I'm not doing it. Is that what these folks did? How many of these people in Nehemiah 8 had one relative near to them that had ever built the booths in the seventh month as Leviticus twenty-three thirty-nine to 44 talked? None of them. So they have a choice to make. Are we going to do what the written word says? Are we going to follow the family tradition of not doing it? Whatever the reasons, their attitude is, if the Bible says do it, we're going to do it. And so they built the booth. and verse 17, there was very great gladness. Now here's what I want to ask you. In this case, something that God's word had said to do all along had been subtracted from man's practice. How did they fix this problem of unlawful subtraction? Once they found out that God wanted them to do it, they put it back in where it should never have been taken out. And they started doing it the way God's written word said to do it. Now that raises this question as we come down to the closing part of this message. If this represents Joshua's day, and this represents Nehemiah chapter 8, And in between here somewhere we have the days of David and Uzzah? Is it true or false that since the days of Exodus 25, up to the time of David and Uzzah, men had added something to, on that occasion, men added something they should not have added to God's written word, correct? And then go a few centuries later, you see that men had not been doing something for centuries. The written word said they should have been doing so how did they fix it? They went back and did it the way the written word said to do it. Now, if this represents Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, what was the word of God on how to be saved then? And as we've come down the stream of time, is it true or false that since that day men have added plans of salvation you can't read about anywhere in the Bible? The fabled sinner's prayer, and you say, is that your hobby? My friend, I want to tell you something. The reason I say so much about the sinner's prayer in my sermons and meetings and things of that nature is because you ask the average man on the street what the plan of salvation is that uh, is most commonly taught for those who would want to obey Jesus, and guess which one they're going to mention? You just say a prayer and you ask Him to come into your heart. If that's what the Bible teaches, that's what I want to preach and teach. But my friends, you cannot find that in the Bible. It's been added to man's doctrines, not God's doctrine. It's the doctrines and commandments of men. And you'll see some things that were done by the first century church in taking the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week, but they don't do that anymore. They take it uh, once a quarter, maybe once a year. Let me ask you, how many weeks have a first day? They all do. You say, well, I don't think the Bible says in Acts 20 and verse 7 that we're supposed to take it every. Does it use the word every? Well, let me ask you this. You go to the banker. You say, I'd like to take out a loan. He says, all right, you've been approved. Your payments are due on the 15th of the month. Whew, this is better than I thought. Did you hear that, honey? He said, the month. All we've got to do now is figure out which one. And when the bank calls, and you try to explain this to them, hey, he didn't say every. He said the 15th of the month. Well, sir, how many months have a 15th day? Oh. Any month that has a 15th day is a day when your payment is expected. Any week that has a first day, and they all do, is a day when your remembrance is expected. And that's what the Bible teaches. And there's no reason for us to go back and try to do it some way other than what was taught there. And here's how I want to close out this message. I heard an illustration years ago that I've just pictorialized. It's not an illustration that was original with me, but I just tried to put some pictures to it to really make it hit home. Let's say that you have a, a mountain stream or spring, and if you go up to where the stream begins... The mountain, the water there is pure and fresh and clean and pure and uncontaminated and it's just as clear as can be and you can actually collect some of it and they do. They call it clear mountain natural spring water. It is not contaminated or polluted by man and you can take your glass and you can drink there and everything's fine. It's wonderful. And yet as the water flows down the stream of time, let's for the sake of argument say that it starts to merge and collide with water that's not so pure or with elements that would take clear water and make them poisonous or toxic. And so suddenly you're no longer looking at something that's good to drink. This is wet see it from where you're sitting in this auditorium, but this is garbage and trash and pollution that's just oozing there on top of this water. How many of you in a moment of thirst would say, that's the water for me. I can't wait to dip my glass in there and get me a big old drink of that. Do you want water just because it's wet? Do you want to drink something just because it's liquidy? My friends, there are places where the water is available but dirty water kills more people every year than all forms of violence including war and uh, how would you like to come to this machine where the product is dirty water and you could get you either the one that will give you malaria the one that will give you typhoid or the one that will give you cholera slop your dollar in there just pop your dollar in there and get this slop and then you'll be fine no you won't this water is going to hurt you even though it's wet. And I don't want to drink the sludge of the doctrines and commandments of men. I want to drink the crystal clear, pure Word of God. There are so many people in this world who have to drink dirty water every day, and it is deadly, and it's something that doesn't have to be. Now, let's just for the sake of illustration say that this water here is not really fit to drink, and you know these people are drinking it, and you know where you could take these people if they just follow you and get some crystal clear water. What would your obligation be? Hey, hey, I've got good news. Come with me and I'll show you some water. It won't make you sick. It is pure. It's clean. It's not contaminated. Who, would you buy a bottle of water in your store if it looked like this? If this is per, supposed to be bottled water... And it looks all muddy and murky and dirty inside. What are the chances you're going to buy that product? You could drink something that would be harmful to you, and uh, it could still be wet, but you don't want it. There's some water you don't want to drink. And I want to ask you if you had three choices, if this represents water that's all filled with sludge and mud, and who knows what? They well, say this doesn't look as bad as this. Well, that's true. It it doesn't look as bad as this. It's Still cloudier than this though, isn't it? If you're wanting clear water, pure, clear water, let me ask you a question. Is there any any decision that has to be made about which one of these has the clearest appearance? This right here. Assuming that it's just water and nothing else has been added to make it toxic, this is your choice. This is not as bad as this, but it's not as good as this. And you've got some religious groups tonight that since the day of Pentecost have done a whole lot of adding and subtracting. And so their glass of religious water is full of sludge and doctrines and commandments of men and toxic things that would spiritually poison your soul. There are other groups that are not as bad as that group, but they're still not as good and as clear and as pure as just this. And that is why we've always said the restoration plea, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. We just go back to the Bible. We go back to the pure source. And if we want clear water, it's available to us. We can get it by going beyond everything that's polluted it. If a man is standing here in the year 2015 and he says, I'm so thirsty for God. I'm going to put my glass into the religious waters of our day and I'm going to pull it up and what in the world is that swirling around inside this religious world? It's a lot of who knows what. I'm not drinking that. I'm dumping that out. That's not fit for consumption. But you're still thirsty. Well, this won't satisfy you. It'll harm you. Is there any place you can go for a good drink? Yes or no? just have to move from where you are. Go back beyond where you are. Go back to the original fount where the water is pure and clear. Put your theological, religious cup down there. And then just fill it up and drink till your heart's content. Did the apostles' doctrine have any pollution in it? No. They were led by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2.42, the early church continued steadfastly in the Apostles' Doctrine. And I'm here to tell you the only reason why there are all these different churches is because after the one church was started in Acts 2, some came along and started adding what they never should have added. Some came along and subtracted what they never should have subtracted. And the only way to fix this mess is to go beyond everything that's added that shouldn't have been added, go back to the original fount. I want to tell you about a little girl whose mama went to church across town. And one Sunday she'd go with mama to church and the next Sunday she'd go with daddy to church. And this little girl said to her daddy, daddy, does God do all things for the best? What a question. Does God do all things for the best? Yes, honey, He does. No doubt. Little girl, total innocence, missing her mother so and knowing her mother's at church across town and she's with Daddy, but next week she'll be with Mama, but she won't be with Daddy. Daddy. And she's trying to process all this. And she's just heard her daddy say, God does all things for the best. And the little girl says, well, daddy, if that's true, if God does all things for the best, why didn't he just make one church so you and me and Mama could all go together? He did. He did. And man came along and messed it up. He started adding his own think-sos and subtracting God's divine word from his practice. And I'm telling you tonight, the only way to be united is to speak as this book speaks and to do all things according to the authority of God's word. In the name of the Lord Jesus, Colossians 3.17. And maybe you're here tonight and you say, I, I don't know if I've ever really followed the one way that leads to heaven. The Bible says that faith is produced by hearing the Word of God. And you've done that tonight. You've heard God's Word preached. Do you believe Jesus Christ is the only way you could be saved? John 8.24 says, If you don't believe that, you'll die in your sins. Are you willing to repent of your sins? Acts 17 and verse 30, And do what God asks you to do to change your ways? Would you confess Jesus Christ tonight as Romans 10, 9, and 10 says, Confession is made unto salvation with the heart man believes unto in the direction of righteousness. But then are you willing to, Acts two thirty eight follow the same plan of salvation Peter gave? Let me ask you a question. What if somebody were to interrupt me tonight during this sermon and say, okay, preacher, you convinced me Jesus Christ is my only hope. He's the Savior of the world. What shall I do? Should I give them a different answer than Peter gave on the day of Pentecost? Yes or no? Can I improve on the answer that an inspired man gave in Acts 2? Or should I tell them the very same thing an inspired man told them? I would tell them if somebody interrupted me tonight and said, Okay, I can't take it anymore. What do I need to do, preacher? I'd say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. That's what I'd say. And if you did that, guess what you'd be? You'd be a member of the blood-bought church that belongs to Christ. Undenominational, pre-denominational. Let me close by telling you this. That couple, that young girl that said, Wait, you're not trying to get us to leave our denomination to join your denomination? You're just trying to get us to become members of the same church of Christ we're reading about in Acts 2. That's the church you're trying to get us to become members of. When I said, yes, that's all I'm trying to do, she said, shall we go to the pond? They had a pond on their property. I said, we can go to the pond or we can go to the heated baptistry down the road. You choose. We went to the heated baptistry down the road, and I baptized her, and I baptized her husband, and he's now a gospel preacher. And you know what? I asked them that night as I was filling out a little certificate to remember what they'd done that night. Just to give them historical remembrance of this day. I said, if somebody asked you tomorrow, what did you do last night? What would you say? I said, we would tell them that we were saved last night. I said, what if they said, oh really? That's great. Which denomination? I love their answer. They said, we'd tell them in a nice way. And I love that part too we tell them in a nice way, we found out last night we could be saved and be a member of the Lord's Church, the one you read about in the Bible, without having to join any denomination. And friends, it's my privilege to still preach that to you tonight, and to give you this chance to throw off the shackles of pollution that man has given, and just go back to the original source of truth, and drink there and become a member of the Lord's Church By hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized. If you're going the wrong way tonight, go back. And when you get back on the road you're traveling, then I want to ask you this question as the invitation song begins. Where will you be when you get where you are going? I hope in view of that, you will start your way down one of these aisles as the song begins. If you're not in the church... That started in Acts 2. If you're not in that blood bought church, then you need to get out of the church you're in if it didn't start in Acts 2. And you need to get in the church that started in Acts, the second chapter, which is still found tonight wherever men do what the Lord's will says to do. If you're not a member of the blood bought church, become one tonight. If you're already a member but not acting like it, come back before it's too late right now as together we stand and sing. Please, won't you come?